So if you don't know, we've been going through the book of Psalms. We, we, we took um, the entire summer to do that, 10 weeks devoted to uh, uh, the Psalter. And, and just so you know, uh, kind of our philosophy and approach to the scriptures is when you come here on Sunday, um, 99% of the time we will be going through a book in the Bible. Now, the book of Psalms is different in that it's not in narratival form. It's not written in some type of story. So uh, we picked 10 of those Psalms and kind of went through different ones. And this morning is the last week that we're going to do that. We're going to finish with Psalm 139. And then next week, we're going to go to the most important sermon ever given of all time. And that's Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew, starting in chapter 5. We're going to go through that verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and explain, get out a lot of the things that, that he ha- has spoken. So let's do Psalm 139 for now. I've got a lot to say before we get to the text because um, this is a text that ends up on a lot of coffee mugs and t-shirts, and so we want to get there um, the, the right way. And, and here's, here's actually where I want to start. I think a, a big um, theological girding that, that upholds Redemption Church is the fact that we hold to a big gospel, okay? Now, when I say big gospel, I don't know if I necessarily mean what you probably think I mean, so let me explain what, what, what that is. We, we don't just hold to the fact that Jesus came to save you from sin, okay? We would hold to the fact that Jesus came to eradicate sin. And so when I say a big gospel, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is always first and foremost cosmic, okay? Cosmic in scope, meaning as far as the curse goes in Genesis 3, God's grace found in Jesus Christ on the cross goes even further to restore the creation itself back to the way it's supposed to be. And from that, we recognize from it being cosmic, we can see it being very much communal, meaning God has a people. So in him restoring creation, restoring all things, his people are a part of that restoration process. Now in that community, what you sit in right now, if you are a believer of Jesus Christ, you sit in that community that God in a communal sense is saving us, we are very much so individuals. We are individuals in that community. Now, that may be duh, but here's the reality. A lot of Western theology starts with the latter. It starts with individual salvation. So maybe you grew up with a lot of language. If Jesus came and he was just to die for one person, he would have just died for you. And you're weeping, right? You're walking to the altar, filling a card, getting a, a, a Bible, and, and you feel great about yourself. And, and here's what I want to say. I think all of that's true. That is literally my story, how God saved me. But the reality is, for the most part, we stay There, we stay and think through the lens of an individual gospel. And I just want to put in front of us, the narrative of Scripture is a lot bigger than just your salvation. Now, I start there because here's uh, the irony of of all that. Um, There are moments in Scripture when he says, yes, my, my salvation is cosmic in scope. It's communal in scope. But then there are moments in Scripture where he goes, if it was you, I would have. Like, like he, he looks at us and goes, I'm here with you. And, and I think um, my propensity is kind of to err away from that because um, we kind of have added American consumer individualism with the gospel and, and, and Jesus has become all about you. But there's moments where we got to sift through that and go, but there is a healthy way to look at how God cares about you. So there's two authors um, I, I want to start with, a guy named C.S. Lewis and a guy named A.W. Tozer, two of my favorite authors. A.W. Tozer um, wrote a book called The Pursuit of God. I cannot recommend that book enough to you, but he has another book, less uh, well-known, called The Knowledge of the Holy. And in it, um, he, he begs the church to ask a question. This is what he says. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most important fact about any man is, 
what he, is, uh, what he in his deepest heart conceives God to be like. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. So this was written in 1962 in the Knowledge of the Holy. It's A.W. Tozer, okay? And his whole point is um, what you think about God is the most important thing, the most important answer you can give if that was in question form. It is the big deal. Now, about 40 years prior to that, a man named C.S. Lewis wrote Chronicles of Narnia, a couple other books. In his book, um, uh, The Weight of Glory, knows that theology before it ever reaches Tozer. And so he actually has a quote pushing a little bit against that. And when I say a little bit, a lot of it against that. Uh, This is what he says in The Weight of Glory. I read in a periodical, I put blog because most of you don't even know what that is, um, the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think about God. It is not. Okay, so here's his first declaration. I read the other day a lot of what Tozer was talking about, that the most important question we can ask ourselves is, or at least get at, is what do I think about God? And he goes, no. Okay? So he's pushing against. They're still my favorite authors, though they disagree. Uh, uh, um, He says this. It is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it relates, related to how he thinks of us. So what he's getting at is Tozer would go, hey, what you think about God is a huge deal, right? Because maybe you think of him as polytheistic, meaning he's, there's many gods, or pantheistic, he's, he's everywhere. Maybe you think of him as, as angry or cruel or whatever it is, right? And so you're, you're thinking of him in that way, that's the most important, okay? But the reality is, Lewis, who I agree with in this argument, if there was a debate here, goes, no, the reality is uh, what God thinks of us is more important because it's reflecting after that what is ultimately we thinking of him. So, uh, to put it simply, I would go, um, in the moment where we can come up and conjure up ideas of God, that's a big deal, okay? But when we read the truth about God, how he interacts with us affects how we believe in him. Now, if I haven't lost you up to this point, we've got a lot of psalms to cover. So um, I want to start there, and, and here's where, why I want to start there, and I think um, in some ways it's going to help, because... Um, As we dive into the gospel being individual, the fact that he came for you, there's going to be some things that you're going to have to wrestle with, okay? Some things that you grew up in the church that are not biblical. Um, And what I mean by that is you thinking, and I use this term a lot, and I don't mean to continue to say it, but you thinking you're awesome. You looking in the mirror and going, I'm great. I'm powerful. I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. Is super anti-biblical. Is super anti-biblical. So when I I look at my three-year-old daughter, I tell her she is beautiful. I tell her if she would obey God, like she could do great things. Now she doesn't know what I'm talking about. She's three, okay? But but when I look at her, I I, I tell her and I tell my boys like how great men they are, what great men they will become. But here's where I always start. Because you are made in the image of a great creator, Eve. As she gets older, she's 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and she starts to deal with self-esteem issues, right? And she starts to hear girls talking about her and boys talking about her, right? And she hears all these negative things. I can't look at her and go, you are so awesome because you're awesome. No, no, no. My worldview forces me to go, do you know how beautiful your creator is? If I can make God big in that moment, and she believes she's made in the image of that big God, then everything changes, doesn't it? Then everything changes. And so that's the approach I want to take to, to understanding. Because Psalm 139 is ultimately about 
God. But when God deals in the Bible with anything, he deals with man and he continues to find his glory in man in crazy ways. And so that's what we're going to see, okay? Now, here's the last thing. I said I have two things. Here's the second thing, okay? What we're going to try to do in expressing Psalm 139, the importance of it, is next to impossible, dare I say impossible, because of our limited knowledge. So Candace and I, going back to Eve, do something with all of our kids. Now it's really honestly Eve, because our boys are too cool now. But um, we, we go, well, I love you bigger than a house. Now she's three, and she goes, well, I love you bigger than an elephant, right? And I'm going, I don't think you understand, Eve, okay? And then so I respond, I love you bigger than mountains, well, I love you bigger than a whale, okay? How big of a mountain do you think I'm talking about right now? Like, I feel like you don't love me, um, okay? So, so it's this back and forth. I love you. I love you more. Now, now here's the trick in this, okay? Eve, at a, at a three-year-old level, cannot understand how much I truly love her, okay? Because I've been where she's been as a three-year-old to know what it's like to love my parents. But she has not been where I've been. Her knowledge, her understanding, her capacity to even understand those things is limited. She cannot get where I am because she has not been a parent. She does not know what that's like. And so I can continue to explain to her how much I love her, but that knowledge is limited. And that's why preparing for Psalm 139, for as beautiful as it is, as many shirts as we want to put it on, coffee mugs as we want to put it on, it's extremely difficult to express because the reality is we're the three-year-old in the situation. As we, as we look to God, him trying to, over and over, being a pursuing God, explain to us how much he cares, we're going, I, I just don't get it. So if I sit Eve down and I go, listen, sweetie, like, I love you so much that when I go to work, I can't wait to come home and wrestle fight with you. I love you so much that we've literally altered our life to make decisions because you were born. We love you so much. She, she would go, giraffe? I don't know what to do with that, Okay. Like, like she would not understand the sacrifices that we've made up to this point for her in a loving way, without even thinking. And the sacrifices we'll continue to make as she gets older, without even thinking, because we love her. She, in this moment, cannot understand that. So how do we even begin to step into realms of how much God loves us? I mean, how could I take Psalm 139 right now and say, like in the book of Hosea, God's love is like a man who takes a woman, a prostitute, to be his wife. And he takes this woman, and she cheats on him. And you know what that man does? I'll still love you, come back to me. And she cheats on him. And you know what he does? I'll still love you, come back to me. That's the type of love God has. Like Luke 15, that God is like a shepherd who has 100 sheep, 100 sheep, and one of them, like a fool, runs off. One of those 100 sheep, 99 sheep, God's love is willing to say, I'll go after the one. Like he's, we're told in Ezekiel 16 that his love is like a man who finds a baby who is dead in a field. He picks up that baby, rocks it to care, feeds it. That baby grows up into a grown woman. He puts rings on her fingers, barrettes in her hair, gives her food to eat, gives her a place to live, takes care of her and loves her. And in that moment, she says, eh, and she gives away the jewelry. She gives away the food. She, she completely commits adultery on him, and she moves away from him. And you know what his love responds with? It doesn't matter. I didn't love you because you loved me. I loved you because I loved you. That's God's love. How can we begin to even scratch that kind of surface? We can. But I think Psalm 139 gives us a glimpse into if we are willing to hear his voice. Let's do it.
Psalm 139, verse 1. Um, so you know, as you look at Psalm 139, there is an outline and, um, in some ways that you can kind of follow. It's, it's 24 verses, and it's broken up into four different sections of six verses. So it's one through six, you know, seven, so on and so forth. So it's going to break up into those six different sections. And we're going to go through each of those sections. And I think each section, the first three sections, give us a glimpse into that love, how it works, what it looks like. And the fourth section is David's response to that love. Or more appropriately, here we are in this moment, how we can respond to God's love. Okay, so with that in mind, kind of processing, very similar to Psalm 119. If you were here last week, we talked about God's word, 22 sections of eight verses uh, like that. So here it is, verse one. O Lord, you have searched me. And known me, real quick, we won't stop like this immediately, but verse 1, if you have your Bibles, like a paperback, and maybe you can do it on a phone, you'll see verse 1 starts the same way the psalm's going to end with this searching type language in verse 23. So keep that in mind. It's kind of like bookends uh, that we're going to attack inside. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. So here's the question we want to answer um, based on C.S. Lewis and A.W. Tozer's big debate is, what does God think about you? And starting with the first six verses, here's what we can do um, in, in trying to obtain that goal and answering that question. Let's just start with the fact he does think about you. Before what, what it is, let's just sit for a moment and go, well, what does God think about me? Let's start with, well, he does think about you. He does. He didn't, like, form you, right? And like, all right, go do it, right? And then he's like, all right, what else do I have going on? No, no, no. He's very much involved with what's going on. Now, now this is tricky because um, we have to talk, talk about a fancy word here, semantical range of the word no, okay? Because he says no quite often and even uses different words like acquainted with, right? So verse two, you know when I sit down, you discern, another way to say it. Uh, in verse four, you know it all together, you're acquainted with. So God's using this language, but we have to understand it's, it's more than just kind of uh, a knowing, like informational download cognitive reality. Uh, if you could, for a moment, uh, think of maybe a family member who has like cancer or get some kind of ailment, right? The doctors know what's going on with him or her. And, and maybe the family members outside of the immediate family know what's going on with him or her. And maybe your neighbors, they know what's going on, but you are in the bed next to them. You're sitting there right by them and you feel what's going on with them, right? There's something more than just knowing, and that is the language. Matter of fact, it's the same word used when, when Abraham knows his wife. Adam knows Eve, right? So there's something more, and that's not just like a, a weird like sexual thing. It has way more to do with, I know you, like I'm with you. Our hearts beat together. I can feel what you're thinking. Listen, I don't even need to, to do it. Let, let the, the Bible do its justice. Listen to what it says in verse 2. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Check it out. He's in your head, bro. He's in your head. Like, like you're not going somewhere mentally where he's not going, oh, I've lost him. Okay. No, he, he knows your thoughts from afar. He's discerning those things with you. He's processing with you. And it goes on. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. I love this word acquainted because um, the image, and I kid you not, this is what first came to mind. You as a 35-year-old man sitting on your sofa, biting your toenails, and Michael, the archangel, looks and goes, what is he doing? And God's like, he's been doing that since he's like four. It's, just don't worry about it, okay? And he's, 
He's acquainted. He knows what you do. He knows what you like. He knows what you dislike. He's acquainted with all of your ways. He's there. He gets it. He is with you. But he's not even done with that. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. So here's the beauty of this, because when that trial comes, when that pain comes, here you are moving on this timeline towards that, and God knows when that's going to take place. And before you ever pray for your spouse, before you ever prayed for your friend, before you ever hoped, before you ever pleaded for whatever it is, he knew you were going to pray it. And so he was already working on your behalf. God's everywhereness, God's all-powerfulness, his omniscience is legit. It's awesome. And here he stands speaking very much, putting his laser beams on you. The last part, I think, is a great statement of safety. Um, You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Like immediate sewing in like a pocket, right? He, he sews you in. You are secure. And, and one of the things that as we continue, as I go back to my daughter Eve, we continue to instill two things within her, right? The first is that Jesus loves her and Jesus will always protect her. And if that means your life is taken from you, don't worry, sweetie. Jesus will protect you. He's got you. Come hell, come high water, come death, come life. Jesus will protect you. He's got you. And, and, and in this moment, we see He hems you in. So those first six verses are huge for us because we try to get our mind around them, but the reality is we can't. And and to prove it, verse six uh, points us in that direction. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. The the, the great point, I think, of verses one through six is is quite simple. And let me just put it as, like if I was to explain it to my three-year-old. Sweetie, he cares about you. He cares about you. He cares about you. What happens to you? When you go off and do that, he cares. He cares. He cares. He cares. He's with you. He knows what's going on in your mind. He cares. As soon as you receive that call, as soon as you felt the weight of loss, he cares. He cares. He cares. And you can't even begin to touch the hem of how much that reality is true. That knowledge is too high. Think of what you feel just to know that God cares you can't even begin to understand the megascope of what that is. It's too wonderful for us. Our knowledge is limited. He goes on. He's not done with just his omniscience and the fact that he knows all that's going on within you, even in your head, but, but that omniscience is everywhere. Verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit and where shall I flee from your presence? Verse 7 is going to pose two questions based on the fact that God desperately loves and cares for his children. Verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? Can I get away from that caring? Can I get away from that love? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Uh, If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. There's two things, two statements in here that he's going to use. If I ascend to heaven, right? Um, And and heaven there is not the way that we're thinking like a spiritual heaven. It's like the skies, the the highest parts of us, right? Or I go to Sheol, transliteration of a Hebrew word for grave or hell. And his point is, in a very poetic way, God cares about you. He loves you. And it does not matter how high you go. It doesn't matter how low you go. Wherever you are in this universe, he is still caring for you. 
There's no place you can go. And then he begins to use poetic language. Imagine the sun burst from the east between the mountain skies, and we could see the sky, the, 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 the light beam shoot across it. If we could ride that light beam all across the world and try to escape it, we couldn't go. Or we go to the Mariana Trench as deep as we possibly can go. There is no place. Hide yourself in your home, in your bedroom, in your closet, in your mind. He is there. That caring, that love is relentless. And unfortunately, we process God almost from the opposite view, right? That God is in some way, like our Father, a a judgmental God, and he sits there, and we've got to earn into his graces. But the narrative of Scripture seems to be the opposite, that we as children keep trying to flee from him, but he as a good God keeps pulling us near. He's a good, loving, pursuing, everywhere, all-knowing God. That knowledge is too wonderful for us. It's too wonderful for us. He cares about you more than you care about you. He cares about you more than you care about your children. He cares about your children more than you care about your children. He cares, and that love is going nowhere. It's there, everywhere, everywhere you are. I I love to, because even in the moment, uh, he uses this light and dark language. And I think it's important that we don't just see this as a physical manifestation of the poetic nature that David's trying to get at. But I think this is spiritual as well. Because some of you come into the room and you feel like you have no idea how far I've gone. Like how many guys I've slept with, how many times I've gossiped, how many times I've stepped in the casino when I knew I shouldn't. You have no idea how many times. And all he responds with is, I started this thing and I'll finish it. That love is there, man. It's there. Now he's not done. Verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In the book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Just two things real quick before we totally break down that section. One is this uh, specific section of verses 13 through 18 has been used as an apologetic for for being pro-life. And I would argue that's accurate. Um, And I'm not going to push my political agenda on you, but I'm going to push my political agenda on you. I would would put in front of you um, that being a Christian, it's hard not to see that abortion is a complete evil atrocity. And and I would argue just if you can just for a moment, um, if you to hold to a biblical worldview, know if you're not a Christian in here, know why we would believe that to be so. Because we as Christians would look at, look at the little term, and it's also used in uh, Jeremiah, my unformed substance, right? That's very important language when we think of um, when babies are babies, when they exist as little humans, even before their substance is formed, right? So there's, there's not like six months, it's not three, it's, I would process just to at least go through the Bible and see conception, right? Now, again, feel the guilt, know my political agenda, and believe in it. That's all I'm asking you to do, okay? Now, that's not the point at all uh, uh, of what I want to break down here, but I, I think it's worth noting. Um, but the other thing about this section, and this is like the co- when I keep saying the coffee mug section and like the, the, the T-shirts, right? Like, it's very hard to like not see a newborn baby and that newborn baby put in a basket with yarn and then the subtitle going, he intricately wove me in my mother's womb, right? And you're like, oh, it's like, all right, that idea is not new anymore. So if you do that, that's good for you. Just don't show me, okay? Um, okay. That was, I don't know why I said that. Um, 
here, here's, here's what I ultimately want, want us to grab from this section of verses that I, I believe is important. That the first section is putting us in the direction that God cares and he loves. The second section is going that caring and that loving nature of God is everywhere. But here's the third thing, and this is big. That caring and that loving nature was before you dared even care about him. That, that loving nature was not just everywhere, but every win. You understand it's been there before you, more appropriately, before you were born. And I quote, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So he goes, I'm making in this moment, in a, and it uses this fearful and wonderful made. The best way that I think I can explain this, and it may sound too emotional and over-spiritual, but uh, the man who married Candace and I um, talked about it like this, and right, it's charismatic, but for whatever it's worth, he, like when he's creating, he wasn't like, John, Bill, but he's going, I'm making John right now. And he starts to knit you together. Like, and, and that may sound like, like oh, but, but I think there's a fearful and wonderful made that it wasn't just this mass production of the some 20 billion people that have lived on the earth before, but there's a very much caring. And as he does this, he knows how many days he's given you, how many heartbeats you've got, how many breaths you're going to take, how many steps you want to go. He knows. He did all of that before you were born. So if you think you can go low enough, you're wrong. He knew those things before you were born. Not before you got your act together, before you were born. Not even before you willed, as you think, your arms to grow in your mother's womb. No, 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 no. Before that, before that, he cared. Before you knew what caring was, he cared. And hear me, right now, some of you know that your soul's telling you that's true. Your soul knows it very well. The last one, the last section is a response to all these in verse 19. This is David as he knows these truths that God cares and he loves and that caring and loving is everywhere and that caring and loving is every win, if you will. He knows and recognizes that. And that being the case, David responds with a declaration. And here's his declaration. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malice intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies random. So here's David going, God, you love me so much. You care about me so much. That love is everywhere. That love is, is, is always been, and I hate them. Okay. This seems weird a little bit. Okay. Um, so, uh, let's just talk very quickly about two things and understanding what David's getting at. The first one is the word hate, right? Um, if you look at the English language, look at Noel Webster's definition of the word set or run, um, there, there's over a, literally over a hundred definitions for the word set in our English language. So, so just to read the word hate and think we not automatically know what that definition is, is probably not necessarily true. Um, he's getting at something more than just, uh, the way we process like malice, intent, hate, all these things. It's, it's, it's way more poetic than that. And, um, I struggled. This is the hardest part of the whole, uh, passage for me to really begin to break down. And then I read something by Tyndale house. It was a 47 page document stupid amounts of boring um, and, and um, really dense, and, and I read it, and all I want to do is share of those 47 pages one tiny paragraph with you, okay, um, that I think explains this word hate, and it's literally on the word hate found in um, Psalm 139. So 
Uh, Psalm 139, this is what it says, uh, or this is what uh, Tyndale House said in response to that. Psalm 139 is undoubtedly the confession of God's uh, omniscience. The root to know appears seven times along with the synonym of that word being used seven times. In a compelling way, the first three paragraphs develop the theme, finishing off with the submission of, and dedication to God. So here's what they said, first and foremost. They said, as we read the first uh, declaration, it's talking about God knowing us, right? How God's uh, committed to us, how much God loves us. And the fourth part, as I just explained, is a response to that. Um, I am with you. That's the, that's the dedication to God. That's where he's, uh, David's responding. Uh, in reflecting on the theme, the sayings about hatred in verses 21 through 22 are therefore, hear this, a confession in the negative mode. This is emphasized by the way in which the wicked are introduced. They are God's enemies, and only then, and in that context, the enemies of the psalmist. Through the, say, uh, through the sayings in verses 21 through 22, there is a clear dividing line set between the psalmist and his enemies, with his loyalty to God being emphasized. So the point, I think, is one to say, God here offers this love, this caring for all people, but there are people who actively work against him. And as they do that, David is going, and I am with you. So the only way I can uh, truly maybe express this is part of my story. So I grew up in the hood, right? And um, in, in, in growing up with, with people like that, I remember very specifically, I'm in, I think, sixth grade, uh, uh, one of my boys, Raphael, really quiet guy um, that I ran with, Raphael and these two twin brothers, and I only remember one of them. His name was Marcus. Um, but but we, would, we were good friends, right? So we, we grew up, and, and here's what we knew. We always had each other's back, and that's maybe obvious, but I remember one s- specific situation where um, these couple guys came up, and they started yelling at Raphael, our boy. And so Raphael was like the quiet dude. He didn't really say anything, but everyone kind of likes being around him, that kind of guy. And so he's there, and Marcus, these two twins, I don't know what was wrong with their DNA, but um, they were like fighting everybody. So this dude comes up and just starts yelling at Raphael. And, and I'm the instigator, of course. I'm a small little white kid. I'm like, yeah, he said that about you. What's he doing? Okay. But not Marcus. Marcus hears him coming as he's yelling at him without a step. We're in an alley. I remember very specifically, right in his teeth. And the kid goes, okay. And I was like, do you know him? And Marcus is like, nah, man, nah. Okay. I'm like, oh my gosh. Okay. Now here's what we knew. Here's what we knew. Nobody messes with Raphael. I don't even care who they are. You don't mess with them because he's our boy. And if somebody's against Raphael, they're against us. Now, that may not sound super Christian, but hear me out. <laughs> the, the point is less on David's hatred for these people and more his commitment towards his God. Okay? The point in this moment is to go, listen, if they're against you, I'm against them. If they hate you, I'm against them. Now, this is important because um, we see this a lot within the, the Old Testament. Let me read a couple things to you, specifically in the Psalms that we see. In Psalm uh, 5, 6, it says this, talking about God. He hates all those who do injustice and abhors bloodthirsty and deceitful men. Psalm eleven five. he hates those who love violence. So there's a declaration here that God goes, if you want to do injustice, and you want to have malice intent, and you're bloodthirsty, and you're pushing against my ways, I do not like that. Nope. I hate that, and I am against you in that moment. Now, that, that sounds confusing, but, but check it out. As a people of God, we have innate abilities to understand our creator and the way that we're created to hate injustice as well. Very few and far between, unless their consciences are completely seared, does someone go, yeah, the molestation of children, I'm all about it. No. We, 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 we hate that. Here's an innocent victim having heinous acts being put against them. 
we are against those things because we have been wired in the image of our creator who hates injustice. And so we respond accordingly. As a people in Deuteronomy 17, 12, Israel has the, the holy duty to hate evil and to do, with, uh, do away with uncleanliness and wickedness. In uh, Joshua 7, the violent and wicked people should be cut off from the covenant community because their conduct endangers the whole community. Psalm 97, 10, the love of God and the fear of Yahweh implies hating evil. And so, so David in this moment is going, I'm on your side, God. The section of scripture, all that I need you to hear is David's response in a negative mode, as Tyndale, uh, Tyndale has said, in the negative mode is, I'm with you. If they're against you, I'm against them. That's all that he's trying to express. Now, we're going to unpack a lot of that as we get to the Sermon on the Mount, um, as Jesus really begins to lay out what it means to love your enemies. But for now, just hear David's declaration of uh, commitment. And then we finish with the last two verses of that sex section. Uh, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Not only does it um, uh, start or finish the way that it started, but I think there's a, a, a kind of a component here. The first one where, where he says to God, you have searched me. And then he begins to lay out the goodness of God. And here's, I think, the beauty of this. Once David recognizes how good God is, how much grace is before him, he goes, then search away, God. If you love me like that, then I don't want to sin. If you love me like that, then I don't want to do evil. If you're always with me, search me. I want this wickedness out of my life. And there's an immediate response to, we should hate the things God hates. We shouldn't go into a bedroom and close the door with him. We should hate the things that God hates. We shouldn't open our mouth when we know it's going to be gossip. We should hate the things that God hates. We should hate injustice. We should hate sin. We should hate those things. God, search me. Find if there's things within me. I want them gone because I want to be near you. That's his declaration. Now, to finish, um, I would be foolish not to bring up the fact that at the end of the day, I think Psalm 139 perfectly is encapsulated with the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. I'm going full circle exactly where we started. So if we could sum up in what is, was just said, here's what Psalm 139 showed us. One, he thinks about you. Two, he knows you. Three, he cares about all that you do, you say, you feel, and you think. He will always be with you no matter where you go. He carefully created you. And above all, all of these things have always been true. Now, if you are a Christian, here's where I want to finish. If that is what God thinks about you, that's the answer of, uh, to that question. What does God think about you? Immediately, if you are filled with grace, if you know Jesus Christ, you have to wrestle with the question, why? Why? I mean, good Lord, like we see it's for his glory ultimately, but he could have done a million different things. Why does he love you? Why? And all I can do is go back to that section and reading verses 13 through 18. And for me to say again over and over what we find in the Old Testament is when God makes a declaration, a agreement or called a covenant in the Bible, when he makes a covenant with his people, it is always based on him. So when you see, and he goes to Abraham, he promises Abraham he's going to have children like the, sand, the sands of the seashore. They're about to make a covenant with one another, and he makes Abraham, no, 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 fall asleep. It's on me. No, no, I promise I'll never flood the earth again. You just sit in the boat. And this is true. So here you are. God has said, I want to spend eternity with you. 
I want to spend eternity with you, not just in heaven, but when it's all said and done, I've made all things new. I want to speak into your life in this new creation. I want this agreement, this covenant with you. But hear me, it's not like I'm looking down on you going, if you would just get that right then, and then you would be my son or daughter. That is not Psalm 139. Jesus, in the beauty and the poetic nature of love, fulfills everything he said to be true of himself in Psalm 139. You know how much I care about you? You know how much I love you? You know how far I'm willing to go? You know how much I'm willing to give up? You know how deep I'm willing to dig down? How high I'm willing to stretch? Check it out, bro. And he gives his life to sinners. He has a woman wipe his butt. He commits himself to frailty. And then he gives his life away on a cross consummating, hear me, not your work, his work. You're not wiser than your neighbor, but why are you saved? You're not smarter than your coworker, but why are you saved? Are you, are, are you somehow, you got a cloud or, or a righteous swag? What is it about you? No, hear me, there you are driving in a car and suddenly God woke you up. You're in a barn, you're looking at the stars, and suddenly God woke you up. You're in a church service like this and suddenly God woke you up. Hey, look at me, I love you. I love you. Would you just read the story of how much I love you? You continue to try to run, but I am committed to this love. And the Bible just tries to tell you this over and over and over again. 1963, Karl Barth, one of the greatest theologians of our time, um, he's probably knows more, he's probably forgotten more Bible than we've read, okay? Um, he, he, he's written books. Um, he is our go-to in so many theological issues. 1963, he's in Chicago at Chicago University, famous story. One of the students stands up during the Q&A time and says, Mr. Barr, if you could um, sum up all of your theology, which is next to impossible, all of your theology um, and all your biblical worldview into one sentence, what would it be? And one of the smartest men of our time simply, simply looks at this young man and goes, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Like one of the most profound men, bam. That's it. Psalm 139 tried to tell you this, and Jesus lived it out before you. May we believe it to be true. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We're grateful, God, for um, your commitment to us, (laughs) like to your glory, like you for whatever reason, and somehow in your perfect plan, you've chosen to use us and your love towards us, um, weaving us together in our mother's womb, being with us always, caring for us and loving us for your glory. And and we're grateful for that because we continue to, to run from that truth. But you, being a pursuing God, continue to pull us in. We're so grateful. So our prayer as a congregation really is two things. One, Holy Spirit, please make our heart believe it. Make our heart believe it. When the world tells us otherwise, when our heart tells us otherwise, when our mind tells us otherwise, when our circumstances tell us otherwise, make our heart believe it. And the second thing is, may it not end on us. And God, I know I've got neighbors and friends and family members who don't know and believe that. They believed lies about themselves. They've tried to answer some of these questions on their own. And they're so lost. May we be a people who is not just gospel-centered, but be outward-focused in our approach to your scripture, that we would see your beauty 
the fact that you've created all men in your image and we would help people know whose image they're created in. Thank you for letting us be ministers of reconciliation as you tell us in 2 Corinthians 5. We're grateful, God, for this truth. We really are. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.